Well, we're still working our way through First John. And before I start the message, I'm just going to give a couple minutes of brief review and reminding us, context, context, context. Whenever you're studying Scripture, context is critical to understand what's going on. And as we've said before, John is writing this letter to believers. He's writing them to believers who are having false teachers trying to come and, and change the word that they were given by the apostles. Uh, the, the first place he started out was just declaring and making clear that Jesus was God in the flesh, first and foremost. He came in the flesh to die a sinless life for us. There were those with all kinds of goofy theories that he was kind of like a ghost, that he was not really a physical body, he was just a spirit. Then there was those others that said that, well, he came as, as flesh, and when he was baptized by John, the spirit came on him, and now he was God, and then he lived his life and ministered, and then sometime before the cross, he, he, the spirit left him, and he was crucified as a man, and then when he was raised from the dead, he was God again, and foolishness. But people were buying into this stuff. The Gnostics were teaching a different theology, different doctrines than what the, the apostles had been teaching. The perfectionism was being taught that, that uh, you know, once you accepted Christ, you were being made perfect. Wouldn't that be great? We're perfect in the eyes of God. We're are holy and righteous. We're pure, but we still sin. And we can't use an excuse of any kind that what Christ did for us to sin. And then he went in and talked about he's really reassuring believers that you are believers, that you're Christians. And he, he said it gave us kind of like three different tests. One was the test of the word, the word that is in you. The word that is in you is evidence that you are saved, that you're a Christian. Then he said the test of love, the love of the Lord and the love for your brothers. If you have nothing but goodwill towards your brothers, that's evidence that you've been saved. So the test of love and then, of course, the test of obedience. If you have a desire, if in your heart there's a desire to please God, doesn't mean we're perfect, doesn't mean we won't commit sins, but we won't practice them. We won't intentionally try to, to live in that life of sinfulness. And he says, you know, those three things are evidence that you're saved, that you truly are a believer. And then he talked about some that went out from among them. They were false teachers. It said if they, if they would have really been on us, they would have never left in the first place but they left that they might be revealed as those false teachers. And then last week we talked about the trap of worldliness, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that snare that we face every single day of being ensnared and trapped by the world, the things of the world. Today I want to talk about the Father's great love. The Father's great love. The songs we were singing what was being taught in adult Bible class this morning, the Father's great love. A few weeks ago, I think it was the Sunday that we had the youth dinner, the youth pancake, pancake sausage feed. I think that's when it was because there was people all over the place. And I remember I came, walked out into the foyer, and I can't even remember which little child it was, but there was a little child that was scared and crying because they couldn't find their mom and dad. You know, if you ever walk over the fellowship hall on a meal, you can see it's really hard to see anybody because there's people everywhere. And this little child is crying. I think it was a little boy, and I, I went over to him. But before I could even get there, here came an older sibling and said, you know, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Mom and dad are over here. And before they could even take them to mom and dad, mom came through the doors, and everything was okay. 
all the fear left, a few little whimpers and some tears on the cheeks, but everything was okay. But I want to change the story and bring us some different circumstances, and then actually this is not my story. It's an illustration that John Piper used in a message over 20 years ago on this very same text of Scripture that I'm going to look at this morning. So I want to just take and change the situation and suppose that instead of in the foyer of our church, this young boy was in a village in Africa. And one day when he's out just playing in the center of the village, all of a sudden all he hears is screaming and shouting and people running in different directions. And he turns to look and all he sees coming at him is a group of men screaming and hollering and carrying machetes and slicing about people and killing anybody they could get to. He turned and ran as fast as he could and he, he hid under a woven basket that his mother had made and he hid under the basket. And he hid there for the longest time until he could hear nothing and then he came out from under the basket. And when he looked around, there was no one there except dead bodies. There was his mother's body, his father's body, his brother's and sister's bodies. He was scared. He didn't know what to do. Darkness came, nightfall came, and he went over and he laid on his mother's body and slept there all night long alongside his dead mother. He woke up the next morning and he looked around and he didn't know, what am I going to do? Not only was he afraid that the enemies might come back, he was hungry and he was thirsty. There were wild animals. He didn't know what he was going to do. He went into one of the huts and he found some bananas, so he ate the bananas. The hunger went away for a little while. He discovered he was utterly, totally alone. Didn't know how he was going to continue to eat. Didn't know how he was going to survive. Who was going to take care of him? Who was going to watch over him? And finally, he decided he was probably just going to die and join the rest of his family. Then he hears a sound, and he turns around, and he sees a single tall man standing in the the dirt square of the village. And this man calls out to him in his own language, and he says, don't be afraid. I want to help you. The little boy wants to run and hide, but there's no place to run and nobody to run to. And this tall man comes walking over to him. And when he gets near him, he pulls out a piece of bread out of his pouch and he gives him the bread. And the little boy eats the bread. And then he gives him some water from his water skin that he has and and he gives him a drink of water. And then the man looks at him and says, I tried to stop them. And then you see the little boy sees that his arms are all cut up and there's lacerations on his arms and he's got cuts on his skull. And the man says, if you'll come with me, I'll take care of you. I am so sorry about your father. I'm so sorry about your mother, your brother, your sister. I'll help you bury them. And as they work together burying the dead, they begin to talk to each other. The boy warms up a little bit. And the boy learns that this man belongs to the tribe that just slaughtered his entire family and his entire village. And he also learns that he and his son, his young son, had been at the meeting when this other tribe was deciding whether they should attack the village or not. And he says, my son and I tried to stop them. I didn't agree with what they were going to do. So we put ourselves between our kinsmen and your village, thinking they may stop. But they killed my son, and they wounded me. 
And then he finds out that this man has walked to the village to see if there was any survivors and had found him. And suddenly he begins to feel an overwhelming sense that maybe this man really does love me. Maybe he really does care. In fact, it cost him the life of his own son to be there to try to save him. Not only did he discover that, that he found out that your own village, the young boy's village, had also attacked this other village many, many times. It was an ongoing war. And not only had that happened, he found out that this man and his own father were enemies. His father had tried to kill him many times when they'd attacked. First, this made the little boy more afraid again, but then he realized that this man is trying to save him in spite of the animosity, the hatred that existed between the two tribes and the two families, and then his sense of love becomes even stronger, realizing this man must really love me. He must really care. Hope starts to rise up into his broken heart in spite of all that's happened. And he thought, maybe, just maybe, there could be life beyond the loss of my mom and my dad and my brother and my sister. And he finally agrees to go with the man. And and over the next several months, he learns some unbelievable things about this man. Even though he lived in that village and was part of that tribe, he had been educated in a university, Oxford in England. That he was a very, very wealthy businessman back in Europe. He had homes in Burundi and in London, and he had a sheep farm out in Yorkshire in Scotland. You don't understand it all, but over time you learn that not only has he rescued you from death, but he is supplying all your needs beyond you could ever imagine. And he realizes with every new lavish gift that this man gives to him how much he loves him. He must really, really love me. His own son was killed in trying to protect me trying to save me. He was part of a tribe that hated his own tribe and his father. And as the years passed, he got a little bit older and a little bit older, and he began to realize not only had this man saved him and meeting all his needs, he had done all of the legal work necessary to adopt him into his very own family. And not only that, he had made arrangements as the only living heir to a total inheritance belonged to this little boy. Now, I hope as you go through that story, you can see some correlation between what God, our Heavenly Father, did for us through His Son, Jesus. But the reality is no human story can fully picture for us what God, our Heavenly Father, did through His Son, Jesus. I'm going to read to you, First John, just the first three verses of chapter 3. They, they won't be on the, the screen in their entirety yet. We'll look at them each individually. If you have your Bibles, you can read along. It says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it didn't know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. It's almost as if right in the middle of this letter that John is writing 
to these believers, warning them of the false teaching, giving them these tests to assure them that they're saved. It's almost like just in the middle of this letter, all of a sudden, he just, his mind wandered to the Father's love. And he couldn't contain himself and he stuck these verses right in the middle of this letter. And when you look at the verses, you see his heart, his excitement, his almost surprise at how much God loves him, how much God loves us. When you look at 1 John verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. The word see how great or see, some of your translations it might say behold. Behold, it's like stop whatever you're doing. Look at this, pay attention, meditate on this and think about this. Look how great a love. And he says that he has bestowed on us how great. The more literal translation was it would be what, what manner of love. And the very original, if you go back, it actually meant what country are you from? It's as if he's having this revelation. He says, look at this. This is the most amazing thing. I can't even describe it to you. I can't even tell you what it's really like. I can't even tell. It's beyond human comprehension how much he loves you. That's how much he loves you. you. I wish I could tell you, and I wish I could put words to it. I wish I could explain so we could really understand, but it's beyond human comprehension the kind of love our Heavenly Father has for us. And John is just in awe of this, and he's sharing this with these believers. The love of the Father. How great. What kind of love? What manner of love is this that he's bestowed upon us? I'm going to read it in a couple of other translations. And when you read the message or the living Bible, a lot of times what they do, they look at the meaning behind the words in the original language. And we know that the Bible, though, as we have it, wasn't punctuated like we have it. But I think in the way the message and living are written, they take into consideration with the punctuation even of what John was feeling. It says, what marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We are called the children of God. And that's who we really are. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us and they don't even take us seriously because it has no idea who he is or what he's up to. That's the message. The Living Bible says, See how very much our Heavenly Father loves us, for he allows us to be called his children. Think of it, and we really are. But since most people don't know God, naturally, they don't understand that we are his children. The emphasis on the words that he was using in this first first verse of chapter 3 are trying to just drive home the point. Listen to this. This is the most amazing truth you'll ever hear. He has made us children of God. He drew us. He provided the way in. His son died on the cross to save us. And all the promises that come with our salvation. It cost us his son to save us from sin and death. John 3.16, in light of what we're talking about, it says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that who should ever believe in him will not perish, but you'll have eternal life. And he writes here in, just, in chapter 3 of 1 John, if you just go over to verse 16, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. 
You know, we were enemies of God. There was enmity. There was hostility between us and God. And when you look at 1 John 4, if you turn a page in, in verse 10, it says this, In this is love. In this is love. It's like he's saying, this is the highest expression of love you're ever going to hear about or witness. And then he goes on and says, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. There's a word we're not all that familiar with, right, probably. Propitiation. There was a, there was a righteous anger of God towards sin. And that anger had to be satisfied. That's what propitiation means. He was the satisfaction. He took our place. He is the one that satisfies and appeased this righteous anger of God. He loved us so much. He went beyond all the kinds of love that we can understand. He went beyond this kind of love that I'm talking about already. He went beyond rescuing us. He went beyond sacrificing his son Jesus. He went beyond giving us clemency or pardoning us for what we deserve because of sin. He went beyond all that. His plan was even bigger than all of that. You know, the kind of love that he's already demonstrated would have been enough. He didn't have to go any further. He had already sacrificed his son. He'd already propitiated his anger and appeased it and satisfied it because of Jesus. He could have stopped there, and we'd have been the most thankful people on earth. But he didn't stop there. He showed us another kind of love. He took us into his family. He made us to be called children of God. Nothing required him, nothing required him to go beyond the redeeming love, the forgiving love, the rescuing love, the healing love. Nothing required him to go beyond any of that to satisfy the justice of God. But he did. He didn't stop there. He went to adopting love. Adopting love. But even adopting love, even making us members of his own family, still falls short of describing the Father's love. And John is just, it's like he's in awe of this, and he's just going on. And he says, it, it, goes, it gets better. It gets better than redeeming us. It gets better than saving us. It gets better than paying the price for my sin. It gets better than all of that. It even gets better than adopting us into the family of God. It gets better. He's thinking of something so amazing that I can't even give you a human analogy to make the point. He's thinking about the new birth, being born again. And he's blown away. You know, when we think of human adoption, and that's really the only way we're able to think when we think that we've been adopted into the family of God. Some of you in here have been adopted into the family that you were raised in. Some of you were the parents that adopted those children. Some of you are in the process of, of, of adoption even right now. And it is a very, very, very high expression of love. When you legally take on a child as your own and you love them and you care for them just as if they were your own. And when you take them on, you take them on with the personality, the appearance, the physical appearance, and oftentimes even the temperament of the biological parents. The DNA, it's there. 
You can't change it. That's why this analogy of human adoption breaks down with our Heavenly Father. As awesome as adoption is, you can never get to the very nature of the child and change it. But God does. God does. He gets to the very nature of who we are and we get the new birth. We're born again. Paul talked a lot about adoption, but John, it's like John has gone past that now and he's just like, we've been born again. In 1 John 3, verse 9, he says, no one who is born of God practices sin. In other words, intentionally wants to sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. If you're a child of God, you are one by adoption. It's a biblical truth. But more than that, you're also a child by the new birth. In 1 John 5, verse 1, it says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. And if you go back into the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus is actually speaking. He says, unless you're born again, there's no way you can get into the kingdom of God. The new birth was an expression, the ultimate expression of God's love. When you go back to that verse in, in uh, 3, verse 9, where it says his seed abides in him. The Greek word there for seed is the sperma. The sperma of God. The seed of God. It's the Holy Spirit. Dwells in us. Has been deposited in us. To transform us from the inside out. It changes us completely into this new creation in Christ. We're a new person in Christ. He changes us from the inside out. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to even adopt us, but he chose to. The love of the Father didn't stop and doesn't stop until he has penetrated our very souls and planted the seed of the Holy Spirit in each one of us. That's how much he loves us. He gives us a new nature. That new nature is not a divine nature. We are not God, but we're being transformed into the image of God. Transformed into the image of the creator of the universe. His spirit inside of us, transforming us from the inside. And if you would, to shape us into the family likeness. So when the world sees us, they begin to see Christ. We begin to resemble Christ, the image of God. The new birth. And as awesome as that is, and as excited as John appears to be there, it gets better. He says, we, we know all that, even though we don't understand it all, we know all that. And look at verse 2, he goes on and he says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. And we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. This coming, we know what's coming. Jesus is coming back. And he is saying, this being a child of God is hard to understand. We can't. It's incomprehensible to the human mind. His love is so great and it's so amazing how much he loves us. But he says, we haven't seen anything yet. It's even going to get better. As a matter of fact, we don't even know what it's going to look like. There's an uncertainty there. But we can be certain 
Because God's word says we will be transformed. We are being progressively transformed right now as children of God into the image of Christ, into the image of God. We are progressively being transformed. But there's going to come a time when God sends his son back for his church. And it's going to happen just like that. And we will see him. And we will be fully transformed into the image of Christ. John is like, I think, beside himself right now. As he's thinking on this and meditating on this and sharing it with these people in this letter to just try to blow them away with understanding and comprehending how much God loves us. How much he loves you and me. And then he says in verse 3, so be ready. Be ready. We have, he's saying this, this is the hope that we have. We are now called the children of God. And when he comes back, the transformation is going to be completed just like that, and we will become what he intended us to be all along. We have that certainty, that hope. So he says, be ready. Be ready. And everyone who has this hope, verse 3 says, fixed on him, purifies himself. Just as he is pure. Take a little liberty with his words. It's like he's saying, if you have this hope, show it. If you have this hope, show it. Let the world see it. Purify yourself in preparation for his return. Now, before some of us start slipping into works mentality right away, figuring out how I'm going to clean myself up, that's not what he means. What he's saying is totally surrender yourself to Christ. Totally surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit. As you totally surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit, you will become purified. The more we surrender, the more totally surrendered we become, the more unattractive the world becomes. The more unattractive sin becomes. We want nothing to do with it because we're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. So if we surrender ourselves, this is what he's saying. You know how to purify yourself in preparation for his coming back? Surrender your lives to Jesus. Surrender your lives more totally to the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not lead you into sin. The Holy Spirit will not lead you to gratifying the lust of the flesh. The Holy Spirit will not lead you to gratifying the lust of the eyes. The Holy Spirit will not lead you to satisfying the pride of life. It won't do those things. So as we're totally surrendered to him, it releases this amazing amount of grace in our life. Grace. Grace has a dual meaning at least. There's the aspect of it being that unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. But he gives it to us anyway. And then there's the aspect of grace as a power of the Holy Spirit in us. There's a power aspect to grace. As we totally surrender ourselves to Christ, the grace is released in a greater and greater way in our lives. And it arouses a desire in us to be pure like him. Let's face it, if we're going to be totally honest with one another, there's a lot of time we desire the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, 
and we succumb to that temptation. And we say, I just can't, I can't, I can't. You may be right. In the flesh, you can't. But as we surrender our life to Christ, we surrender our life more and more to the Holy Spirit, there's a grace that comes from the Holy Spirit that puts us in, in us the desire to resist sin, a desire to live pure and holy. I mean, I don't know if any of you grew up wanting to please your mom and dad in the natural, but multiply that times about a zillion. The Holy Spirit rises up in us and gives us a desire Think about, he loves us this much. All of this that John is talking about, that we're the children of God. Not only are we adopted into his family, we've got the seed, the sperma of God, the Holy Spirit in us, transforming us into the image of God. We didn't deserve any of it. That kind of love is ours, freely given from him. And it should, as we surrender the Holy Spirit, it's going to rise up in us. I want to live like, I want to please him. I want to please Him. I desire to please my Heavenly Father that loves me so much. It's the least I can do to show Him how much I love Him for what He's done. And not only does He give you the desire, He then gives you the power to overcome and do the right thing. He empowers us and motivates us to take action. When we have that grace in our lives, no longer will we say, I can't do that. I can't resist. It'll be like breathing. Nothing to it. Because it's the grace of God working in us. It's the power of God working in us. You know, in and of myself, I can't even desire to do the right things. I look at some things, I think about some things, and the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes comes in, and the pride of life, and I want to impress, and, and, and I want to do all those things because my flesh needs it to make me feel like I am important or somebody. When the Holy Spirit is there, we look at those things of the world and they're nothing compared to the hope that we have as a child of God, knowing His returning. And when He returns, we're going to be transformed, transformed in an instant in the image of God. It's our dependency upon the Holy Spirit that drives sin out of our life and gives us the power to keep it out of our life. So it's not about self-effort. It's about total surrender. Now having said all of that, there is a starting place for this whole process. This may not apply. Everything I've shared today so far may not apply to some of you. Scary, isn't it? To some of us, none of this might apply. Because until we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we are not the children of God. We are children of creation. He created us all. But until we accept Jesus Christ as our propitiation, our satisfaction for my sin, until I do that personally, not by any works, not by going through any religion classes, not by getting dipped in water, or getting water sprinkled on your head. None of that works. You're still not a child of God. Live a perfect life as long as you can. It doesn't matter. You're still not a child of God. Until the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, personally. Personally. And what does that mean? It's simply, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. There's no way I can approach a holy God as imperfect as I am. If you're not saved, that's truth. 
when you are saved, it's all washed away. And you can approach a holy God no matter what. It's such a great deal. And He loves us so much, He offers that to every single one of us. Every single child of creation has the opportunity to become a child of God. And you have to acknowledge you're a sinner, that there needed to be a substitute sacrifice who was sinless for you, and that was Jesus. God in the flesh. And accept that He died in your place and that He rose again from the dead. He ascended to the Father's right hand. And as a child of God, one of the perks I'd love to talk about today, but I'm not going to, is we're seated at the right hand of the Father with Jesus as joint heirs. Joint heirs. That boy in the story I shared, joint heirs. Whatever that very rich man might have had, it's nothing compared to the inheritance we have in Christ. Nothing. So I would ask and challenge and encourage, plead with you. If you've never accepted Christ personally as your Lord and Savior, do it. If the Holy Spirit's wooing you, drawing you, if your stomach's jumping up and down and doing somersaults right now, guess what? That's God drawing you. There's no reason ever, as it says in chapter 5 of 1 John, he says, I'm telling you all these things that you may know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're saved. And if you don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're saved, get certain. Accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We could have an altar call and ask you to come forward, but I'm not going to do that. I want you to make more effort than that. I want you to come to me or Pastor Bob, one of the elders, right after the service and just say, I need to accept Christ. Because when you do, the Holy Spirit moves in, the sperma of God, and you begin to change inwardly. You begin this process that we're all going through that none are going to reach completion until Jesus comes back. And John says, that's a certainty. He's coming back. And I don't know what we're going to look like when he comes back, but he says, I am certain he's coming back, and I am certain when he comes back, we will be changed just like that. It's like he's saying, you know what? What more motivation do you need? What more motivation do you need? If we have this hope of the transformation of Christ, we should continually be wanting to surrender our lives to Him in greater and greater ways. You know, the Bible talks about that day coming when the trumpet will sound. I don't understand that part either. But it says we're, there's going to be a trumpet, and when that trumpet blows, decisions had better already been made. Because when the trumpet blows, he's coming back for his church, for his children that he purchased with his own blood. And you want to be ready. I want to be ready when the trumpet blast goes. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit is moving in the hearts and lives of each one of us here. God, if there are those that do not know you as your personal Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray right now that you are wooing them by your Spirit with an irresistible force. Give them grace to receive the gift. 
of salvation through Jesus. And God, for others here, I pray, Lord, that as we hear your word, we catch some of the enthusiasm in John's words, and we are in greater and greater awe of the love that you have for us. An overwhelming love that you have for us. God, that it would create a desire in us to totally surrender our lives to you. That we might be led by the Holy Spirit every day, all day long, in all that we do. God, I thank you that when Jesus hung on that cross and he spoke those words, it is finished, our sins were taken care of. Once and for all. For every single person who accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That we can discover the depths of your love and the intimacy of a relationship you desire to have with us. I pray, Lord, that each one of us here would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our future is to be completely transformed into the image of Christ. Lord, and I pray now as we go our different directions, Lord, that you would let no one leave here if they don't know you. Everything's in place for the trumpet to sound. We thank you that you've tarried this long. Lord, we pray that you might tarry longer, that more might know you. But we do look forward to that day when the hope that we have becomes completely visible to each one of us. And this transformation is complete. Lord, I pray all this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.